welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to Polygamer Podcast, episode number 70 for Wednesday, September 13th, 2017. We have covered on this show video games, board games, cosplay, and the like. Today we're doing something a little bit different and we're talking with the mastermind of Green Door Labs, that being Kellyan Adams Pletcher. Hello, Kellyan. Hi there. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. So I was just electrified by your presentation at Women in Games Boston this summer. You got up there and spoke with so much passion about Green Door Labs. You obviously have a lot of investment in this cause of yours. Uh, thank you. Well, uh, I love what I do, right? I mean, as we all should, you know, and I, I got lucky that I've been around for long enough, I think, that I just found something I really care about and have been able to make a business off of it. And what exactly is that business? Green Door Labs, it's a name I've heard in the Boston area over the last couple of years, but it's not quite like anything else I've ever encountered except maybe escape rooms, but it's not quite that. So what is it that you do? A little bit. Yeah, we do have a lot of crossover with escape rooms these days. Um, we were around before the escape room industry became a thing, actually. <laughs> we, we were doing escape rooms before it was cool. <laughs> and, uh, hip, hipster games, right? Uh, but no, actually, that's so interesting because I remember talking to my husband ages ago about the concept of an escape room. It's like 10 years ago. And we were like, oh, this would be so amazing. But we just couldn't find a way to make it profitable because we were like, well, you can only have one person in there at a time. We just couldn't make that lateral movement to having 10 people in the room and then when it happened we were like oh this is incredible why didn't we think of this so uh yeah so i love the concept of escape rooms you know that that type of game has been in my brain for a long time now uh, but i i like to say that green door labs uh we build games that have uh digital physical elements and we usually create things where the digital and physical interact sometimes we build only digital games sometimes we build only physical games but i would say that you know our specialty is building um experience in physical spaces. And there are three different ways that that sort of comes together. Uh, the first way is that I do an awful lot of work with museums. Museums are sort of my first love. And I started our first, very first project a long time ago um, with uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That was the first Green Door Labs project. And since then, we have done a lot of custom museum projects for places like, you know, Sanger's um, Industrial History Center, Boston Children's Museum, just finished up a game with the Old North Church, uh, working on a game um, right now with Peabody Essex Museum. Uh, this summer, we did one with the Smith Smithsonian Castle. So we do a lot of custom work with museums. Um, and, you know, as a former educator, I just really relate to that space. I, I really enjoy what they're building out there. Um, and then the second thing that we do is we work with libraries. And so we have this wonderful platform, and it's called the Adventure Builder. And the Adventure Builder is this really simple platform to let you create your own interactive choose-your-own-adventure or scavenger hunt. Uh, sometimes people will do sort of multiple-choice quizzes or tests um, with it, but it's mobile and that means that you can sort of run around a physical space with it. So currently we use that at a lot of different uh, university libraries. They're using it um, to help with their orientations. So these libraries will sometimes you know, have hundreds, sometimes thousands of kids, freshmen that will show up first couple of weeks of school and they need to show them all 
how to take out a book. You know, a lot of them have actually never been into a physical library before. So uh, we work with them to create these games that let them sort of train people to use a library. And, uh, and then the third thing that I'm just super excited about right now, because it's sort of a brave new world for me, at least, and it's definitely like a, a new and sort of emerging part of the arts game world, and that's um, immersive theater. And so uh, we call the immersive theater part these Green Door X projects. And usually um, we build something in a physical location, and there's a game part of it, and there's also a theater part of it, and there's usually some sort of secret hidden message that I've baked in there that people may or may not get. But you know, as a former educator, it's kind of hard for me to build anything that doesn't mean something. You know, it's usually it's usually get some content baked in there somewhere. Yeah, so that's kind of that's kind of what we do, the the three different branches of Green Door. So I'm curious about the second one, using libraries as an example for the kinds of games that you make because the audience for this podcast, they've probably been to a library at some point whether it was as a kid or as a freshman in college mm-hmm. and they may have been given a scavenger hunt like, you know, find us a biography of George Washington or find mm-hmm. out, you know, sort of like a where in the world is Carmen San Diego in the library? That's how that game worked. Mm-hmm. After all, you would use an right. actual encyclopedia to play the game. How mm-hmm. do, how does one of your games work, and how is that different from what we might have experienced? Sure, I, the the base of what you might have experienced is probably pretty similar. You know that concept of you're in a library and they want you to find content over the course of an hour, maybe. Uh, but where we change it is that rather than making it sort of this physical uh, paper hunt where you have to find all sorts of things, we just moved it to a digital. Form format. Uh, so the digital format will let you do things like, you know, look at videos or take pictures. You can answer a very specific question and then know if it's right or wrong at, at that particular moment. Uh, you can do all sorts of different things with like art, you know, they can sort of write stories into it and make it a lot more immersive and interactive than the, the standard library story. Um, and also it helps a lot, I think, because, you know, when you when you played those games when you're in college, then you bring it back to the librarian. And the librarian actually physically has to go through and score everything and, you know, log the information, make sure that you did it, then give that information to the professor. So that's one situation where gaming is just making life much easier for librarians that, you know, we can see when you played the game, we can see how far you got, we can collect all of your answers, we can put all of your answers on a spreadsheet and send them to your professor just makes life easier for for the administration there. So this sounds a bit like when I was a kid playing Oregon Trail, where I'm supposed to be learning something along the way, and the instructor of the course doesn't have to actually do anything except see how we did when we were done. Oh my god, we actually built an Oregon Trail. You'll have to play it. If, I think if you go to um, Adventure Ed, as in education, um, adventure.us um, forward slash Muse Games, M-U-S-E-G-A-M-E-S, is a bunch of our like museum games. And one of them is actually an Oregon Trail game that uh, that you can play through. Except for we called it Indiana Trail. It was connected to the Indiana Historical Society. And so you had to figure out um, how you were going to uh, get through the Indiana, I think they called it the portage, and then you would go down the stream and you would be a hunter or you'd be attacked by Indians. And yeah, it was all based on Indiana, or, uh, Oregon Trail. So it's such a great format. You know, can't go wrong with those old 80, 80s 8-bit games. Like, they're so fun. Absolutely. I, I still play those games to this day. And it sounds <laughs> like, actually, it seems like the Oregon Trail is one of the most emulated games 
names in the Internet Archive. I mean, that would make perfect sense because the structure is so strong, right? I mean, there there's so much structure and so much flexibility as well within that that simple game. But I've also done um, a variation on uh, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Because, again, I mean, these old games, they had this really strong structure because they didn't have a lot of technology to cheat with. Um, so their art couldn't be all that exceptional and their tech wasn't all that flashy. So they had to just make really simple game dynamics that were really robust. And I think that works, you know, that especially for educators, educators really need their games to be flexible. You know, they're, they're going to have anywhere between five and 5,000 kids run this game and they don't know how, and they don't know when, and they don't have any budget, you know, <laughs> I'm going to build the whole thing with $20 and a roll of duct tape, you know, and, and these old games really lend themselves to that type of format. I hope you're not saying that using technology is cheating. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. But, you know, I, I think there's always that catch about sometimes people um, will retrofit their ideas into the technology rather than having the technology um, meet the ideas. You know, if that makes any sense, like I have a lot of museums that will say to me like, oh, I really, really want to use VR. And you're like, OK, well, what do you have? Like, what content do you have that needs VR? Um and they're like, oh, well, we don't know yet. <laughs> I'm like, well, why do you want to use VR? You know, like the content comes first and then you have the technology to meet your, your learning goals. Not like, oh, we want a flashy technology. Let's stuff some content into it. You know, but that, that's my own prejudice when it comes to tech. So what tech do you rely on or what tech do you refuse to use when making your games? I have not yet had a situation where I really refused to use any sort of tech. Um, sometimes, sometimes they will talk clients into using tech that's a little bit cheaper than what they have in mind. Um, so I, I have a like a pretty solid design process that I always go through where first you have to figure out what your goals are. Like, what are your goals for the game? Like, what do you as a builder want to accomplish? And what do you want your player to accomplish? Like, what do you want everybody walking away with? Essentially, how will you know when you won? And because if you, if you're not able to establish that, like right out of the gate, then it's really hard to build anything good. Uh, and you can have everybody being like, oh, well, it was great because it was pretty and it was fun. It's like, no, 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 you really need to, you really need to establish what a win state is for everybody. And then you talk a little bit about your resources, right? So what do you have? Like, what can we use? And again, I work with a lot of nonprofits. So often it's about stretching what existing resources we have. Do you have an intern that could potentially be doing some of the writing? Do you have some sort of an artist that you know, we could maybe use some of their existing assets or we could edit their existing assets to build new content? Um, you know, and sometimes the, the resources are really weird. Um, like I had uh, a museum that I worked with that had tons of squirrels on their campus. That was their resource. <laughs> Okay. That's a resource. It was a resource. It was a resource because <laughs> it was like it was super noticeable, right? Like you walk onto this museum campus. It was a big plantation. It was the Lee family homestead down in Stratford, Virginia, and they had tons of land with all these squirrels running around everywhere, and you really noticed it. And uh, and they also had like the the old Lee family logo, like they had a family brand and it had a squirrel in it and said, you know, nay and cautious futuri. And they were, they were really into squirrels. And so, you know, in the gift shop, they sold all sorts of squirrels. So it's like, okay, if you guys have squirrels, that's a resource. Let's work with it. You know, rather than, uh, rather than having to rebrand all sorts of stuff, you know, work with what they've already got. How do you work with squirrels? Are they cooperative? <laughs> they were, 
were very cooperative. Oh my gosh. I had so much fun with this project. So we created, um, the squirrely university was the name of this game. And we decided that, um, it was, uh, a university for squirrels and they do a lot of historical research, but they can't go inside because they're squirrels and they don't want to be rude. You know, like they can't, they can't, invade a building. And this was especially interesting because this space, um, they had this huge plantation, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful location. And then this one like really tiny 1600s building. And I mean, it was cool in that it was from the 1600s, but like those old buildings, they're just walls and halls, you know, there's just not much in there. They're dark and, you know, there's not a lot of places to explore. Um, I mean, there are, but they're, you know, but they're very small and, you know, it's, it's not as exciting as, you know, big open fields. Um, so we need to give some sort of a reason why, you know, we bring kids to this amazing, you know, playground and we say, okay, now go in this tiny house. Um, um, and so that gave us an excuse. We we're like, okay, squirrels can't go in the house. You're going to have to help them. We got to do some research in there. And what we created was this really solid research project. It was really similar to the way that historians work, um, where we would give the kids artifacts and we would say, okay, describe this artifact and use all these words. And now I want you to sketch a picture. And now tell me what you think it might be used for, because we've heard rumors, you know, the squirrels have heard rumors that it might be used for this and that, but, but we're not sure. Of course we made it super goofy, you know, because they're squirrels and they were terribly misinformed. <laughs> so, like, we'd give them an object and the squirrels would be like, okay, we heard that this was for breaking nuts. Like, no matter, no matter what the object was, we were like, is this for breaking nuts? Wishful thinking. <laughs> right, right. How about this one? Is this for gathering nuts? No, no, it's not actually. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so that's sort of how you use your resources in order to, to maximize what, uh, what an organization can do with what they've got. Now, that's not a resource, in this case, squirrels, that you can count on every facility having. So it seems like your games are pretty custom to your clients. Well, like I said, it depends on what type of project they're doing. You know, we have those three different types of projects. One is the custom games that we build largely with museums. The second is the library games, which we actually have a standard game that libraries can just edit and build off of. They can build their own special thing. Um, but, you know, a lot of libraries have similar goals. So uh, we call that one uh, Veritas, the, the search for truth, justice and verified information sources. You know, so that's a that's a game that can that can scale fairly well. And then, of course, Green Door X projects are all custom because it all depends on the space that we're working with. So if you have a game that is pretty portable, like Veritas, what sort of DRM can you put on it to make sure that museums aren't just passing them around amongst themselves? Um, so when it comes to Veritas, um, it mostly is the technology that, that we're selling. Um, the, the Adventure Builder is just... It's just a really great workhorse of a program. Um, hypothetically, I'm sure a library could look at it and be like, yeah, we're just going to copy all this content and do a paper test. Um, I don't think we'd be upset if they did that. Honestly, it's a library. Um, a lot of the content that we use is pretty straightforward anyways. Um, yeah, so so we don't, we don't police our content all that carefully. So you talked a little bit about the technology that you do use, and we likened some of it to the escape room. What about Pokemon Go and augmented reality? I love augmented reality, actually. I'm a huge fan. Um, but again, it depends on what your, uh, what your goals are, you know, like what are, what are you trying to accomplish? Uh, so there was a museum up in Maine, um, Portland Museum of Art, and they did, um, I think they called it 
uh, PMA Go or something like that, um, where they tried to like bring you out into the city of Portland and they used the Pokemon Go system and uh, you would like collect art in different locations. And I, I think that's kind of a cool uh, utilization of augmented reality because what they did was, you know, pictures of, um, you know, people in the 1800s on the, on the wharf, you know, unloading fish and, you know, unloading products, but these old paintings, you know, that was, those were the paintings that you would collect when you went down to the waterfront. And, you know, then when you went up to the sort of fancy houses on the hill, you would collect pictures of society people in the 1800s. So, I thought that was pretty neat, actually. You know, they used augmented reality to tie their collection into the city that it was built for. Um, and I, I really like that. You know, I like to I like to see when people take these very static collections and they bring them out into the world that created them in the first place. Now, I don't know much about the infrastructure behind augmented reality other than that Niantic currently underestimates how popular Pokemon is going to be. Do you have the infrastructure to just create an AR game like that? Is it that easy? Yeah, yeah, actually, it's pretty easy. There's a lot of uh, platforms that you could use. Um, Blipper is a pretty good platform for something like that. Um, Tailblazer, I think, is um, starting to do AR types of stuff. There's a lot of AR overlays that are not difficult. Trouble with AR, well, so the trouble with AR is that it's finicky. Um, And that's always the... Uh, thing that I warn museums about, like for instance, this summer I was working with the Smithsonian Castle and they desperately wanted to use AR, um, but they wanted to use it for an indoor space. And like navigation, like GPS navigation is super unreliable for indoor spaces. Um, but when you're in a museum or a school or a library, it, you usually want one location that's on one side of the gallery, one location that's on the other side of the gallery. It's really hard for technology to tell if you're on the right hand side of the room or the left hand side of the room. Um, like Pokemon Go or PMA Go, like those things work really well because you're looking at GPS locations that are maybe blocks away from each other. Um, that's a good, that's a good use of AR technology. Um, that, that seems to get the job done, but when you're working with any sort of inside space, it can be done, but you know, is it worth, is it worth the headache or is there another type of technology that will get it done quicker? Um, indoor navigation is just always a bear. It's always hard to find a good solution for that anyways. I see people taking audio tours through museums where they punch in a number when they arrive at a certain art installation or exhibit. Does something like that work indoors? I mean, honestly, it's like the audio tour is sort of like the Oregon Trail of indoor navigation, right? (laughs) It's like this old system that's super reliable, you know, like it works really well. Yeah, I used to work so long ago and far away. I worked with a company called Scavenger. Um, And Scavenger was a great platform and a great company. I loved working with them. But the initial Scavenger um, was big on geolocation. And so I spent so much time um, in museums or like, you know, in cities watching people play these scavenger hunts, trying to use geolocation to find stuff. And what I found was that people respond to um, tech navigation, to Google Maps, very similarly to the way they respond to um, just directions. Um, And for what it takes you to be able to build in these maps and GPS locations and, uh, you know, beacons and knowing where people are, the return on your investment is not massive. Um, you know, people don't really mind using directions to go from one place to another. And the technology, even now, just does not seem to be 
much better. Like the, the user experience that the technology currently delivers is not like, you know, it's not head and shoulders above what you would get from, uh, from just telling someone where to go. Um, it will be someday, you know, we're still waiting for the, the tech to sort of refine itself. Um, but you know, not, not quite yet. I mean, at least I haven't seen it. You know, I haven't seen the magic, the magic bullet yet. I actually want to ask you about Scavenger, which our listeners might know better by its current incarnation as mobile payment app Level Up. But when it was Scavenger, it was about the geolocation, as you said, and sort of gamification. Did the ideas for Green Door Labs come from Scavenger, or were you already into that, and that's what drew you to Scavenger? So I was already um, working in a video game company in China before I started working with Scavenger. Uh, so I sort of, I, I sort of sharpened my video game design chops when I was in Shanghai. And uh, I worked for a language learning game over there for probably about a year. And then I came back to the US, uh, got my master's in education and built my own language learning game. So I was already sort of building and designing. And that's when, you know, I saw that Scavenger was looking for somebody who had education experience and also gaming experience. And I was like, oh, that's me. Um, yeah. So so that's when I, I connected with Scavenger. I was one of the very first employees employees. That was their first female employee. And I just loved that company. I had an amazing time. Um, the other thing that was so great about Scavenger was that I got to learn a lot about how people interact with digital guides in physical spaces. And I got to do it all on their dime, which was great because they hired me to essentially test out these games in different museums all across the country. And I really got to see how people responded to these types of things in cultural institutions. So I learned a ton. And actually, I was going to ask you about China as well. You seem to have led a global career where you started off from humble beginnings in New England, <laughs> travel all the way to far-flung China to become an international expert. You come back and bring this global perspective back home. It seems like you've done so much, and yet it's all had that connective thread of video games and education. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I keep saying this to people that it's like you do a thing and you do that thing a little more and you do that thing a little more and all of a sudden it's the thing that you do. <laughs> you know, it's it's sort of funny the way that it all comes together. You know, you just do more of the thing that you like and then all of a sudden you find 10 years later that you're sort of an expert in this field that, you know, when you were a kid didn't even exist. Like I didn't even know this was a thing, you know, and and now I'm one of the few people that, you know, builds these digital physical experiences for museums and cultural spaces like solely you know not too many people um have done just this for the last 10 years um and i am lucky enough to have been able to see how these types of programs respond all over the country it's pretty cool so why didn't you just go into traditional edutainment and make the next blues clues game oh, i don't know i don't know it's not funny I, I i think a lot of the times it's just a matter of what's sitting in front of you um, and I think I, I owe a lot of it. I owe a lot of it to Scavenger, right? And because Scavenger just gave me the opportunity to meet all these wonderful museums all across the country, and I also just found museums really um, enticing and engaging and exciting. It was really museums that uh, sort of pivoted me into everything else. You know, even now I just find it so exciting to walk into a museum and I, I love that. I love that physical culture. You know, I love that there's an object there that was on a boat in the 1700s and somebody scrawled a note, you know, into, into some sort of scrimshaw or something and it's there and I can see it and it's real. It's a real thing. And I think sort of as you know, we get more and more into this 
digital existence um, that it's exciting to see things that exist, you know, that have like a real place in real time. And as an educator, it meant so much to me to be able to see these objects that connected to these times that are so ephemeral otherwise. And so I think that just got me really excited about the interaction between the digital and the physical spaces. So not necessarily creating another Blue's Clues that everybody can kind of see from their disjointed screen, but what if you use the screen as the tool to get you to the content that you want? You know, again, this concept of, you know, content first, and then you use the technology that you need to get there. You know, well, what do I want? I want people to engage with the world. I want them to find great adventures. I want them to find things of beauty and, and meaning and purpose. And those things are in the world. You know, you can find those things. They, they exist. They're physical. How do I guide you to them? And you are most likely holding a digital device in your pocket. And that's the easiest way I can get your attention. So if I can use that device to guide you to these things of value, then why wouldn't I, right? Like that's, it's what exists. That's the resource. My goal is to get you to see these things and experience them. My resource is the phone that you have in your pocket. So so it seemed like such a natural match, you know, why wouldn't you do it? But why approach it as an outsider by creating your own game company instead of getting your master's in, say, museum studies and going to work at the Smithsonian? So actually, I, that that was definitely an option. Um, and again, sometimes it's just things that happen to be in front of you. Um, so when I left Scavenger, and it was such it was such a sweet sweet and sorrowful parting. It was just that Scavenger moved on to level up, and they were wonderful. They kept me on so much later than they should have because it was really clear as they were becoming a payment processing company that I was not a payment processing kind of gal. I wasn't into it. I didn't care about it. Um, I was still doing the work with my museums and with the games, but that just wasn't their business anymore. And so finally, you know, we got together and we we're like, oh, you're not the same company anymore. <laughs> like, I, I really can't be doing this anymore. Um, they were like, yeah, we don't have a place for you here. Um, but they said to me, which is, you know, incredible. They were like, listen, take all of your museum contacts. That's not our business anymore. We don't need them. You know, continue the good work that you're doing. Like, we will not do any sort of NDA, you know, take your clients with you. I was like, okay, thank you. So what I ended up with was, you know, a pocket full of contacts with all of the best museums all across the country. Um, and at exactly that time, I was doing a project with the Met. And the Met uh, was really trying to use Scavenger, but it just wasn't the right tool for them. We we're sort of trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. And uh, and so finally, when I realized that I was leaving Scavenger, I turned to the Met. I was like, listen, I don't think Scavenger can do this, but I know it can. Um, do you want to work with me? And we will build this project out. And they were like, yep, great, let's do it. And that was our first project with Green Door Labs. So it was just, that was what was in front of me. So I took it. Wow, that was incredibly equitable. You're basically a spinoff of Scavenger. You are their spiritual successor. I am basically a spinoff of Scavenger. Yes, it's funny. There was this incredible article that, um, oh, I'm trying to remember who was it that wrote it. Um, John, he's calling himself Johnny Startup right now, and I can't, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but he works with uh, Mass Challenge now. Um, and he wrote this great article about how many startups came out of scavenger. And I believe the count was like 17. I mean, it was just, it was insane. The number of startups that spun off of scavenger. So, uh, yeah, so you could say that we, we are, a. a, a 
spinoff or successor of Scavenger, but you could say that about many, many companies in Boston. Uh, they were really, they were good to a lot of us and a lot of people were able to build new things because of the platform that they gave us. Would that have been John Valentine? It was. It was John Valentine. Thank you. Sure. I'll include a link to his story in the show notes. Oh, yeah, please do. Yeah, he was another one of the, the, the early scavengerites like myself. He was such a great guy. And all of us were just like super young and hungry and excited. And we just didn't know what was going to happen with location at that point. You know, is it a very sort of tenuous time? I remember getting my very first iPhone with scavenger, you know, like it was just when iPhones were coming out. I mean, like smartphones were not a thing when I started with scavenger and, and they were just starting to become part of our daily lexicon. So yeah, it was a, it's a different world, even though it was only a couple of years ago. So other than leaving Scavenger with their museum client list, how do you find clients? Because it's obvious you're not limiting yourself to New England. No. I, again, a lot of it has to do um, with the work that you do and who sees it and uh, just sort of the network that you build. Um, I, I found at the very beginning when I was working, especially with museums and now with libraries, that a lot of it has to do, you know, I know this is so cheesy, but it has to do with trust. They hear a lot from a lot of young, hungry excited startups. And as the museum, people like to say, and oh, this is why I love museums, it, you know, museums are in the forever business. And that's the truth. You know, that is what they're in it for. Like they have to last. They're there to last. Um, and libraries are the same way. You know, these are industries that are in the forever business. You can't just have something that's flashy and shiny that works and then it's gone in another year. And uh, so a lot of these industries, a lot of these organizations, nonprofits have been burned by these startups that are not trying to harm them in any way. It's just that startups have a high churn rate, you know, so, so these really awesome people will come and be like, yeah, we can do this for you and it's going to be amazing. And they can, and then they get acquired a year later and then the museum is sort of up a creep, creek and like, okay, well now what, you know, like we got this great deal, but we can't support it. And this program needs to run for 10 years. So yeah. So, so a lot of my, my early work was really just working with these nonprofits and sort of earning their trust and letting them understand that like, I'm in this with you. I understand what you're trying to do. Like we're after the same thing and I am going to be in it for a while, you know, like you can trust me, I am not going to disappear next year. Um, and it's funny because actually that was one of their concerns with scavenger too, you know, using this platform. And I remember one, um, one of the uh, museums, I, I was actually the Smithsonian, the director of digital Smithsonian was like, well, what happens if scavenger pivots in another three years? And then we don't have this platform anymore. Um, and of course, you know, I was so young and naive and I was like, oh no, they'll always exist. Scavenger will be the exact same thing forever. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, that was a total lie. I didn't mean it. You know, like I really, I really believed it at the time. Um, but that also let me see that there's a market opportunity for something reliable. You know, somebody who has the heart of a startup, but not necessarily the growth pattern of a startup. You know, you can trust Green Door Labs will be here in 10 years. You know, we will be able to support these projects with you. We're not going to get like acquired or blow up or anything like that. So, um, yeah, so so most of my clients are just word of mouth. People know my work. They know me personally. I go to all of the museum objects, like museum conferences. Like I really care about this scene. I, I love what they're doing. And you won't get acquired because you don't want to be or because there's nobody to acquire you? I both. Both. <laughs> like, who 
would ever, I mean, and that's the funny thing. Like when they hired me on for scavenger to work with museums and libraries and nonprofits, I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> you know, Cause like, I, I was a teacher. I knew something about the school and education industry. I was like, you will never make any money off of this. And after about a year, you know, and then by that point I had learned a lot more about museum budgets and how they work. Um, and so like a year later, they pulled me back into the office and they're like, we're not making any money off of this. I was like, I know <laughs> you're not going to make any money off of this. It is not, it is not a massive industry. And like, even now there are startups that work just with museums and, you know, they're part of the new England, like, like sort of startup ecosystem. And people will reach out to me and be like, what do you think about the museums industry? And I'm like, don't try and make money off of museums. <laughs> like there is not money to be made off of museums and libraries. You only do this because you care about it. You know, that's, that is why you get into that industry. Um, and, and ironically, when that happened at Scavenger, um, their response to me was, that's okay. We, um, we want to just, if we can break even in museums and libraries, we just want to be doing this good work in places where we're visible. And I was like, I gotcha. I can do that. So even Scavenger, when they were building this type of thing, even they realized that it was a labor of love. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, you don't go into that industry unless you really care about it. So I never really intended Green Door Labs as something to scale and sell. Um, and also anybody would be crazy to, to purchase a company that that's primary market is nonprofits. There's just not, you know, there's not the billions of dollars there that they want. How can you say you'll be around in 10 years when you just said you also are working in an industry where there's very little money to be made? That sounds very tenuous. I, it does, doesn't it? But you know, <laughs> knock on wood, I'm pretty good at it so far. You know, and like I, I know how to keep a low overhead, and I think that makes a really big difference. You know, and again, like these three different branches of how I've figured out how to diversify the work that I do with nonprofits has kept us afloat. Um, so, like uh, most of you know, like seven years ago, you know, when I started with sort of the cohort of indie games in Boston, and most of them have closed and, you know, started to work for other companies right now. I'm one of the few that's still doing my thing. Um, but I think the reason is, while a lot of them would focus on one client base, um, or one game or one type of game, um, we've diversified, um, you know, so we have the adventure builder, which is is awesome, right? It's this like super robust, easy to use platform. And it's just sort of this workhorse that chugs along. I've got about, I don't know, somewhere around a dozen, two dozen libraries that just run their programs on it all the time. So that's this nice passive thing that sort of runs around. Um, and then I've got these different clients that come to me for custom projects. I'll get two or three of those a year. Um, and then now these Green Door X projects, which I love. I'm so excited about these. And these are, these are ticketed projects. And, you know, currently they're still not made making any money. But I think we'll get past that pretty, pretty soon as people start to realize what we're building, you know, because it's really exciting stuff. So, uh, yeah, so I think diversification was really key for us. When you say that museums are concerned about a technology still being around in 10 years, is that an argument in favor of them using something like Inform or Twine, which has a pretty well-established history? No, no, I think it's, um, it's an argument in favor of them being flexible. You know, like what technology anywhere will be around in 10 years? And even if it will be around in 10 years, should you still be using it? Probably not, right? Like even now, like we're working on a project with Michigan and they built this beautiful, beautiful uh, video game, um, you know, like eight or nine years ago, all in Flash, 
right? Now, who would have known 10 years ago that Flash would be obsolete? Um, it seemed like the platform, right? Like it seemed so stable and now it nothing supports Flash anymore. Um, so I think that's the key with these nonprofits that are going to need programs in another 10 years is to be investing in things, maybe with a lifespan of five years, knowing that technology needs to be upgraded. So you mentioned that you have diversified into ticketed events. Can you tell me about some of your recent experiences in that realm? Oh, I can tell you all about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favorite new thing. So, uh, yeah, so I actually am working on Club Drosselmeyer right now. It is going to be 1940 this year. It was 1939 last year. And uh, Club Drosselmeyer is our interactive nutcracker in swing time. It's a sort of sleep no more meets escape room meets full swing band 1940s nightclub with everybody in costume. Um, It's pretty awesome. (laughs) It's a great event. So people have to, do they cosplay? Do you hire actors? How does it work? Uh, both. Right. The answer is yes. The answer to everything is yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just this concept of like experimenting with what can happen with physical spaces and stories that are interactive, right? So more of this sense of creating adventures for people, creating experiences where people learn something and are part of something. And it's like just something magic happens that night that we can engineer this magic for them. Um, and again, like I, I know I always go back to these goals, resources, restrictions, um, but it makes such a difference for me because I was able to build Club Drosselmeyer because I'm a swing dancer. And that means that I know the swing dance community and I know the bands. And if I call on our Lindy Hoppers and say to them, hey, guys, we're having a big, massive, awesome dance. And there are also games and a full storyline and performances and you should come. Um, then, you know, they're they're more likely to do it. You know, so so that was the first thing that I started with because I just I just know the world of 1940 really well. It's just an easy world for me to create. I, I live in that aesthetic a lot. So it was, it was not difficult. Um, but yeah, uh, we created, um, a full, I don't know if I would call it a LARP per se, because, uh, it was very puzzle based in a way that LARPs are not. Um, it really had the feel of sort of, a, an exploded escape room. Um, where the only way that you could find the next puzzle was to talk to the actors. And we did have actors and they were all costumed and we had uh, performances because it's the Nutcracker, essentially. Uh, so, of course, we have, you know, all of our dance performances and we had a full sw- uh, swing band, a full eight-piece big band. Um, they played the Nutcracker in swing time, which was amazing. And because they're, you know, it reached out to the world of like vintage people and swing dancers, everybody showed up like, it was 1939, which is amazing. And, you know, that that's one of my challenges building this year is that people had a hard time telling who was an actor and who was not last year because some of the players, some of the audience that showed up were dressed better than my actors were. <laughs> so people kept going up to them and being like, how do I talk to Rhett the Rat King? And uh, they're like, mm, I'm actually not an NPC. So how do you make that distinction? Um, so I think what we're going to do this year, um, I mean... There's always sort of the easy thing where, you know, you give the the actors get like a lapel pin or something like that. Um, but this year we're going to have to drill down on it a little bit more. So I think we're going to have to have the pictures of all of the actors who have content, um, in our program. So we're going to have a program. You're like, listen, these are all the people you want to talk to. Um, and I think we're also going to add in, um, 
sort of like, we're going to call them waiters or maitre d's, but we're going to have volunteers in there that are going to help people to figure out how to interact with the right characters uh, to get them through the game. So I think that will, you know, two little things. It was so successful last year, you know, knock on wood, it was, you know, I, I don't want to break anything because it was just, oh, it was just such magic last year. It just did everything that I wanted it to do. So I want it to be better, but I don't want to break all the good stuff that we built. So uh, so we're going to try incrementally adding a few couple, you know, a few little things here and there to try and make navigation easier for people. So you're building these games for adults in these environments, also for kids in museums and for all ages elsewhere. My experience is that when you start talking about games that adults play, adults tend to think of either like video games, board games, or athletic events like sports. The the Mm -hmm. kind of play that we engage in as kids on the playground at recess kind of seems to disappear as we grow up. Do you find that play is absent from adults? Oh God, no! Oh God, it better not be, right? Because like, <laughs> would that wouldn't that be the most horrible thing, right? And it's like I don't, we say that, you know, like play is for the children. Well, like, well, then why are children? What do they have to grow up for, right? <laughs> you know, like that's such a that's such a cruel thing to do to children. We're like, okay, you can enjoy your life until you hit about eighteen, and then you can't have any fun anymore. Then you just have to pay bills. You know, like, why, why would you ever do that to children? Right. You're like, you want to give them something to look forward to. So, um, yeah. So, so no, actually, I think that it play is alive and well in the grown up world. Um, but key, I think, I think the most important thing, um, is really permission, right? It's just this concept of permission to play. And I find that with all of my games, that the first thing that you have to grant is, um, expectations, right? And give people a way to engage. Uh, cause I do think that people are desperate to engage. They want to be a part of things. They want to have experiences and interactions that matter, you know, and they want to have fun. They want life to be enjoyable and exciting, but they're not always sure if they're allowed, right? <laughs> like, you know, and you don't want to be that jerk that like, you know, goes into sleep no more and like rips everybody else's masks off. And it's like, Oh, it's my game now. You know, like everybody kind of wants to play by the rules. It's just a matter of figuring out what the rules are. So, um, yeah, so I've found that to be the case. Um, whenever I'm building things, especially with grownups, um, most important thing is, uh, setting the parameters of play for them so that they know how to engage. What are those parameters? Depends on the game. Right. Um, so, uh, so like say for club Drosselmeyer, uh, the parameters were things like, okay, um, you have two hours, um, and this is your mission. If you choose to accept it, you do not have to engage at all if you don't want to. But if you do engage, then there are 10 costumed actors that have content and puzzles for you to solve. And um, and they will help you along the way. And we literally gave them rules. We were like, don't touch our actors, <laughs> which is such a, such a crazy thing to have to say. No right? touching. No touching the actors. Um, and, uh, you know, they people were not mean spirited in any way at all. They just didn't know what to do. And we found that out during our play tests um, is that they were doing things like, you know, they'd like steal our bad guy's hat or like they'd physically try and block him from getting somewhere or something. And I mean, that's kind of the interesting part about something like Westworld, right? Um, You know, Westworld is a fascinating concept, but it, misses like one key element, which is, uh, establishing the rules for interaction. Um, 
and it's it's difficult sometimes when you just throw somebody into an environment and you're like, okay, figure it out, um, because they're like, uh, but who who am I, right? Like, who who am I in this world? Um, and I think that's what, always one of the biggest questions when you ask someone to play, right? Like, what what is my role like in this world, and am I doing it right? <laughs> you know, like, what am I supposed to be finding? Uh, you know, how do I engage with these actors? Do I engage as myself in 2017? Do I create another character that lived in in 1940? Like, and so I I feel like um, grownups just need a little bit more help, I think, than than kids do. Um, cause kids are expected to play and grownups feel like they're not expected to play. So you just need to be, make it like super obvious, be like, no, 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 this, this is exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And certainly the kind of play changes, although we may call it different things. For example, when we were kids, we would play dress up. Now we are cosplayers. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, there are vintage communities all over the country, um, Lindy Hoppers. Um, but the thing that I love about costume, and we actually had a table with costumes outside Drosselmeyer, because I find, especially with grownups, that there's sort of the magic vest effect, right? Like, if you give a grownup a silly hat, they are way more likely to engage if they are sans silly hat. Um, having some sort of a signifier, some sort of a physical signifier that says, I am playing now, really makes a big difference for grownups. Just that simple little signifier opens up the world for them. Kind of. Kind of. Well, the thing is, I think it gives them permission, and it also is a signifier to others that they are playing. You know, so so I think it's sort of that that concept of like messaging, right? You know, so so if you give somebody a silly hat, you're essentially saying, "Hey, you are in game now." And so when people approach you, um, you can respond to them as a silly Russian wearing a crazy hat because you're in game. And they'll see your crazy hat and they'll know that that's what you're doing. You know, so it's just very clear messaging when it comes to grownups. Are your games more often marketed towards grown-ups or children? Uh, it depends on the goals of, of the client. Um, the, the games that I build, so Green Door X games, are almost always built for grown-ups. Um, because there's already a lot of places for kids to play. You know, there's a big market for kids to play. Um, but I don't think there is, there, there aren't a lot of people that are building really good, magic, fabulous, wonderful play for grown-ups. You know, people are building, you know, they're building uh, video games where you get to shoot each other up. And, you know, they're building uh, like, of course, sports, you know, which is kind of ironic. Grown-up play is somehow tends to lean towards either sex or violence, you know, like, like those are the places that grown-ups feel like they're allowed to play. But if you just needle a grown-up a little bit, they want magic and make-believe and fun, silly, goofy pretend as much as anybody. I mean, they were kids once too. Uh, and it's just that type of content is not really being built for grownups. And I, I think that we've really seen that with escape rooms, right? You know, that the escape room market just exploded and, and that was all for grownups, you know, and it, it turns out that if you put 10 grownups in a room and you say to them, you know, Hey, you were just locked in a Mayan temple and you have to get out somehow, like they really go for it. When you said the games that you make, that was a distinction from the rest of Green Door Labs. Who else is Green Door Labs? Uh, so Green Door Labs is um, so primarily me. I am the mastermind. Um, and my husband works with me on on many things, but he also has another full-time job. Um, so like, you know, he works with Oracle, so he has sort of a grown-up job. Um, but I also have two part-time people um, that I work with. And then for each different project, I end up pulling on just a tiny army of freelancers. Um, so I tend to have 
a different team for every project, really. And again, I think that that is another way that we've been able to keep flexible, you know, that I don't have a stable of 20 people that I have to keep employed at all times. Um, I will, you know, grow or shrink according to what we have on the roster. And, uh, you know, people really only come onto projects if they're ready and willing. And uh, so far, it's been a really good way to set things up. If working at Oracle is a is a grown up job, what is working at Green Door Labs? <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it counts as, but uh, but I like it, whatever it is. And you did say that you get to make up your own titles, which is why you are the nefarious mastermind. Of course, of course, I'm the nefarious mastermind. I mean, honestly, we used to do that at Scavenger back in the day too. So, I mean, really, if you have an indie studio, why wouldn't you make up your own title? And I, I think the other reason that I do that is because it's really hard to label what you do um, when you have an indie studio, right? Like, what are you? Are you are you the writer? Are you the producer? Are you the product manager? Are you the project manager? You know, sometimes I'm the artist, sometimes I'm the developer. You know, I never know what role I'm going to have in any particular project. Um, you know, I sort of fill in wherever I can't find other staff. So Mastermind just seems like an easy catch-all. It works well. Speaking of making up titles, where did you get the name Green Door Labs? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. It's one of my favorite stories of all times, and you should absolutely read it because um, it is spectacular. Um, So there is an old story by O. Henry called The Green Door. And wait a minute, I'm online. I'm going to find this story for you because it's so awesome. And I read this story when I was about 15 years old, and I said, um, I said to myself, I was like, if I ever have a business, this tells you what kind of a 15-year-old I was, right? Um, I, thought, I think I might have even been younger, maybe closer to, to 13 or 14. Um, but I was like, I want to name it Green Door Labs because this is the best story ever. And um, are you ready? I, I'm going to read it for you. Okay. Not, <laughs> How much not, longer not is this podcast going to be? <laughs> Two hours. Settle down. Okay. Get a glass of water. Um, no, no, no. I'll just, I'll just read a little one. Just, just an excerpt because it's so wonderful. I love everything about this story. So, the Green Door by O. Henry starts as such. Suppose you should be walking down Broadway after dinner with ten minutes allotted to the consummation of your cigar, while you are choosing between a diverting tragedy and something serious in the way of vaudeville. Suddenly. A hand is laid upon your arm. You turn to look into the thrilling eyes of a beautiful woman, wonderful in diamonds and Russian sables. She thrusts hurriedly into your hand, extremely hot buttered roll, flashes out a tiny pair of scissors, snips off the second button of your overcoat, meaningly ejaculates the one word, parallelogram, and swiftly flies down a cross street, looking back fearfully over her shoulder. That would be pure adventure. Would you accept it? Not you. You would flush with embarrassment. You would sheepishly drop the roll and continue down Broadway, fumbling feebly for the missing button. This you would do unless you are one of the blessed few in whom the pure spirit of adventure is not dead. And that is how that story begins. Wow. I will include a link in the show notes for the entire story, but that is, that is quite the dilemma. Are you the sort of person who would follow that woman? Exactly. Exactly. And I want us all to be the person that would follow that woman. That's the kind of world I want to live in. You know, like I don't want us all dropping hot buttered rolls and going back to reading our newspaper. You know, I want, I want there to be adventures. And if the only way for there to be adventures is for me to build them, well then so be it, right? So you are the person throwing rolls at people. I am totally throwing rolls at people. (laughs) 
throwing hot buttered rolls left and right, screaming parallelogram and hoping they respond. <laughs> <laughs> so you're that person on the street. I was wondering who that was. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, the mystery is dead. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your upcoming ticketed events. What should listeners of this podcast be signing up for? Absolutely. So yeah, I've got two that are coming up. Um, we're doing something sort of different and experimental. Um, I'm working with Shay Rossi from Women in Games. I know Shay. Yeah. Oh, she's fantastic. She's such a good writer and just an excellent game designer and yeah, fabulous human being. Yeah. And she wrote a story that we call The Girl Who Cried Witch. And this is an interactive story that you play on the streets of Salem, Massachusetts, um, between September and October. And so it will be, um, it will be audio, but there will also be uh, challenges and puzzles and a story for you to follow throughout the downtown, um, sort of a mystery that you have to unravel. And how do we sign up for this? Um, that's a very good question. Um, so if keep an eye on Green Door Labs um, and you can follow us, uh, follow us on Twitter at Green Door Labs or on Facebook, just facebook.com forward slash Green Door Labs. We'll put it on our website as well. And I will be Facebooking everybody and harassing everybody to come and play test this. We're totally going to need play testers in the next week or two. But yeah, yeah. And I believe that you will just be able to like buy tickets and download it, head to Salem and off you go. You can play with as many people as you'd like. We'll have all sorts of things for you to interact with once you get there. This is targeted at people living in the Boston area? Yeah, it would definitely be for people who are living in the Boston area. Again, most of the things that I create um, interact with a physical location in some way. And, you know, Salem is another perfect example. Um, all dressed up and nowhere to go, right? You know, it's like you you get to this wonderful place and it's so cool and there's so much going on. Uh, now what? Right? <laughs> like You want there to be a mystery. You want there to be an adventure in this beautiful place. But, uh, but how, right? Like how do you start just sort of giving people a door to, to get moving, to find a way to have fun. Um, and the funny people thing is for like a lot of the games that I build, um, and I don't mind this at all. Like I can see from the adventure builder what the drop-off rate is, especially in museums. I would say mm, a large percentage of the people will drop off maybe about halfway through. And to me, in some way, that's really a success because they are somewhere exciting. And the adventure is already there. It's around them. And like, we've gotten them in. They're through the door. They're there. They're having fun. Like, if they're kind of done with the game in an hour and they just want to experience the location, that's great. You know, like, that's what we wanted them to do in the first place. So like, if, if all we did was to nudge them through that door to get them to experience the space, then like, I feel like my job was done. What other events do you have coming up? Excellent. Uh, so I have Club Drosselmeyer, which is my baby and my favorite event in the whole wide world. Um, so Club Drosselmeyer will be happening December 17th, 20th, and 21st this year. And this year, the mysterious Club Drosselmeyer um, will be held in 1940. So you will be going to the club of Herr Drosselmeyer, uh, magician, inventor, um, scientist, head of Drosselmeyer Industries. And of course, you may have heard this story before, but I'll tell you anyways. Um, you know, he has been working on some very interesting underground military technology, uh, something of an interactive uh, android. It is a, sort of a super soldier that they're calling Project Nutcracker. 
very mysterious stuff. Project Nutcracker, you gotta gotta look out for this. Um, and so, of course, um, Rhett the Rat King will be there, um, and he's also interested in getting his hands on this technology. There will be uh, performances from all across the world. You know, India and Austria and France, um, and you know, who knows? There could be there could be spies. There could be all sorts of intrigue that's happening at Club Drosselmeyer, um, along with original music by Danny Fertina. So. Uh, Rocco and the Stompers are creating, recreating the um, the Nutcracker in swing time. So we'll have a full band and lots of dancing, and you can live in, in 1940 for about three hours. It's a pretty amazing event. I assume there would be a dress code. I, oddly, no. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we didn't really set up a dress code. So um, we encourage people to dress in their 1940s best because you're going to this fancy nightclub. Um, but no, we, I mean, we had a couple of people, one or two, that did just kind of show up in jeans and T-shirts. Um, and outside the front door, we sort of had a little table where we had like, you know, 40s hats and jackets and stuff. And we're like, no, put stuff on. Um, but, you know, we just want people to play. And it's more it's just more fun when you go to 1940 and you're wearing a jacket um than it is if you show up in a t-shirt you know it's just like it just increases the enjoyment of the evening but no we we certainly didn't stop anybody at the door are you creating this event for somebody or is this just for fun no this is my baby yeah this is this is just a, a story that i wanted to tell and it just was so amazing last year and i'm so excited that we get to do it again this year so yeah this is just a green door x project i imagine without having a client that you're designing this game for per se it might be difficult to bring it to other locations outside of new england yeah i mean this is specifically built just for salem um but one thing that i'm really interested in right now and seriously if any of your um, listeners are at all interested in any way i would like to be building more adventure builder content across the country just games that people can play in physical locations, just doors to help them explore spaces. Um, and if anybody has any magical, wonderful spaces that they would like to help people to explore, um, then contact me because I would love to be building games in other places that are not Salem. Um, like I would just, I would love that if I happened to go to St. Louis and there happened to be an interactive mystery there and I could just like pull it up and play like, Oh, I'd be thrilled. So, uh, yeah, so if anybody who is is or even is not in the Boston area is interested in writing those types of things for or with um, Green Door Labs, give me a holler because that would be a really awesome thing to have. That is awesome. And remind us one more time where they can reach out to you. Sure. So you can always reach out to me. Um, just, you know, email is fine. Um, just knock, knock at greendoorlabs.com is, uh, is how you can, you know, ping me at any time. So knock, knock at greendoorlabs.com. It might be, you know, one of the other people that I work with, but most likely, you know, we're a small company. It'll get to me, you know, very quickly. Um, you can also, uh, Twitter, tweet us. <laughs> we're on Twitter at greendoorlabs.com. That's our fantastic Michael. He's in charge of all our social media outreach. So you'll be chatting with him, but he knows everything about Green Door. He can get you right to me. Um, yeah. Or you can, Facebook is always an easy way, you know, facebook.com forward slash greendoorlabs and, you know, just definitely reach out and say hello. That would be excellent. Fantastic. And there will be links to all those sites in the show notes at polygamer.net. Kellyanne, thank you so much for your time. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.